Well, stand with me as we rise to read our sermon text this morning, and if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you can find our text this morning on page 900 as we turn to John chapter 13 and pick up where we left off two weeks ago in verse 21 of chapter 13, and we'll continue to the end of the chapter, so let me read that text for us, and then... I pray for God's blessing upon our study, and then we'll begin together. So listen now once again as the Lord speaks to you through His Word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He had spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Lord, we do hope for your salvation. We know that all of your commandments are true. We pray today that you would teach us the way of life that's found in your Son, that you would help us to behold your truth, the very gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A betrayal is one of the most brutal experiences through which any person can go. I think it's fair to say that the second most famous betrayer in all of human history is a man named Brutus. 
You might know the story of Brutus and his betrayal. It happened a long time ago, children, in 44 B.C., March 15th of that year, a date that many people now know today as the Ides of March. At that time, a man named Julius Caesar was leading the Roman Republic, and he was incredibly popular. So popular, in fact, that they had recently declared that he was going to be dictator for life. And you might know that rising popularity tends to have a corresponding rise in others feeling jealous, others rising in their animosity towards you. And so it was on March 15th of that year that Julius Caesar was presiding over a Senate meeting. And unbeknownst to him, 60 or so senators had decided it was time for Julius Caesar to be assassinated. They arrived with daggers under their cloaks. And one popular retelling of that event has it going something like this. Where at the appointed moment, uh, these dozens of men, they rise up to slay Julius Caesar. And he valiantly and courageously defends them unto a very specific point. He notices that his close confidant, a man named Brutus, is, is likewise wielding the murderer's weapon. And in Shakespeare's retelling of that event in his play, he has Julius Caesar asking, You too, Brutus? Uh, betrayal can be altogether brutal, can't it? Uh, some of you, I dare say, know that quite intimately. But as I said, Brutus is the second most famous betrayer in human history, and we come to a text tonight that no doubt has the most famous betrayer sitting right next to Jesus at a table in the upper room. And what you want to recognize is what initiates our text is simply that phrase in verse 21 of chapter 13, where John reports after saying these things. And so we need to remember what Jesus had just said, and of course what Jesus has just said depending on what Jesus had just done there in the upper room on that night when the disciples and Jesus were gathered to eat the Passover meal together. Because you might remember where we left off two weeks ago. Jesus is there in the upper room, somewhere like halfway through the meal. He gets up, he takes off his outer robe, and he takes on a servant's towel, and in an altogether shocking display of humility, of his glorious love for his people, he stoops down and washes the disciples' feet. And after he's done washing their feet, he gets his clothes back on. He sits back down in his appointed place at the table. And he simply says, if you glance back to chapter 13, verse 15 and 16, he says, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then he goes on to say that this model of perfect love, selfless, sacrificial love, that's to mark your service in my kingdom. He says, you're going to find great blessing if you do this. But he says, not all of you are going to find the blessing because he knew in that very moment, of course, there was a betrayer in his midst. And so our text opens with that betrayer in Jesus' midst. But maybe you noticed as I was reading the passage, it ends, doesn't it? Uh, there's, there's a corresponding bookend to another betrayer. Uh, another person committing treachery against Jesus which, of course, is none other than Peter, who's going to deny Jesus three times. So it's a text that's going to unveil to us something of Jesus' heart towards betrayers and traitors, people that he speaks to, people that he's just served 
those that are going to commit acts of treachery quite soon in the hours that are about to follow. And so it's a helpful point for us to notice even that this morning, because through his word and spirit, isn't it true that Jesus draws near to each one of us? Whereas that night he was sitting next to the beloved disciples. Here he draws near by his word and spirit to people, isn't it true, who have committed this very week acts of treachery against God's law, against Christ's love. And we want to realize that according to this text, some such people will be doomed. Some such people, however, will be delivered. And of course, I wonder which side of that equation you will fall on. So what I want to unite our text around in these three scenes that are before us is something about Christ's heart. Uh, because this is a window, as Thomas Goodwin would say, John's Gospel, it's a window into Christ's heart. We see his heart towards people who commit acts of deceit, acts of denial. Because the first thing we're going to see is the heart of deceit with Judas. And then we're going to see the heart of discipleship in this middle section, which is really the heart of devotion. And then we'll see with Jesus' brief interaction with Peter in verse 36 through 38, uh, the heart of denial. So it's a heart of discipleship we want to see in a variety of different ways. And again, it begins with the heart of deceit in Judas. You'll see how verse 21 continues. And John says, after these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So that's the third time in three chapters John has reported to us Jesus was troubled. Kids, you might remember from a few weeks ago when we talked about this. It painted the picture of these waters being churned up in the wake, perhaps of a large boat moving through an ocean or a sea. It's the third time in three chapters. Jesus is said to be disturbed. His heart is said to be troubled. His soul is said to be churned up. In chapter 11, it was troubled because Lazarus died. In chapter 12, it was troubled because he began to think about the hour had finally arrived for his death to occur. And you'll see, likewise, it's death that troubles Jesus again in that moment in the upper room because the text ends with him testifying, Truly, truly, I say to one of you, one of you will betray me. He knows that betrayal is going to lead to his death and the thoughts of his death trouble his heart. I hope you know that if you're ever going to understand the perfect humanity of Jesus, you have to understand that you have a Lord and Savior who gets troubled over the prospect of his pending death at Calvary. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Yes, he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. But as he stared into that moment of being raised up for all that would look on him with the eyes of faith to be saved. He was troubled in his spirit. Isn't it so often that's the way it works out in the Christian life that Jesus knew he was going to go to Calvary. He knew what bearing the wrath of God against sinners like you and me was going to mean. He knew that he was going to die as the perfect sacrifice. He knew that the Father's pleasure in his sacrifice would mean his resurrection from the grave. He knew, therefore, he was going to triumph over death. So death, as the Bible goes on to say, no longer has its terror, but death still has its trouble upon people. 
then maybe you know the difference. You might not be terrified at the prospect of death, but the prospect of death might trouble you along the way. And he's just said, hasn't he, only seconds before in verse 16, that a servant is not greater than his master. And if this master was troubled at the prospect of pending death, perhaps might it not be true for many of you that you might likewise be troubled one day at your own death? Or perhaps like Jesus with Lazarus, troubled by the death of another. But the triumph of Christ means there's no terror that belongs to it along the way. And you can imagine the tizzy that this statement stirs up within the disciples there in the upper room. That somebody there seated around the table is going to betray Jesus. He hasn't said a name. Children, he hasn't told them exactly who's going to be the betrayer. So they begin to talk amongst themselves, don't they? You see that in verse 22. They're talking. They're looking at one another. Thinking, of course, who is it that's going to betray Jesus? John tells us in verse 23, there's a disciple whom Jesus loved, which surely is John himself, leaning against Jesus in this moment around the table. So you have John seated right next to Jesus. Evidently, his relationship with Christ was perhaps specifically close in a variety of different ways. Uh, But Peter is that disciple who's always impetuous, but he's also uh, that disciple that always has the fear of missing out, doesn't he? And so you can picture him as the text tells us. He's motioning in some ways to John and trying to say to John, John, figure out who it is that's going to betray Jesus. So you can picture Peter across the way in the table, maybe with his face, with his hands, maybe mouthing words, ask him who it is. And so John asks Jesus, notice verse 25 through 27, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, and it's he to whom I have given this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Evidently, the way this passage continues, he said that only to John, in a way that only John would have heard, because the disciples are confused by what follows. But he dips the morsel, notice verse 26, gives it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do Quickly, all the disciples hear that command. Judas, go ahead and do what you're going to do. They don't know why Judas is dismissed, what Judas is even dismissed to do. But Judas is getting ready to go. And the text tells us that Satan in that moment entered into Judas. Now, if you glance up to verse 2 of chapter 13, look what John has already reported to us, that it was during the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas. Simon's son, to betray Jesus. So do you see the, the pattern that belongs to this succumbing to the devil's scheme? It's as though Judas experienced Satan coming and knocking upon his heart, asking to come in. Judas lets him in, and his fate is sealed at that point. He's going to be the one that betrays Jesus. And so often that's how Satan works, even in our own hearts, isn't it? He comes with subtlety and some degree of cleverness and knocks, puts something before our hearts, wanting it to go in. And if we don't resist the devil, that scheme, that sin does enter in. And if you compare this scene with other stories in the other Gospels, what you'll find out is that as best we can tell, The reason Judas betrayed Jesus was primarily due to his wounded pride and his love of money. 
And I trust you know that temptations unto sin from a wounded pride and love of money is not unique to Judas. That Satan may even be putting it into your heart to betray Jesus in your own sinful thoughts, your own sinful words, or your own sinful actions from a wounded pride or a love of money. And students understand that in such a circumstance, in such a situation, if Satan is going to come near to you and put something before your heart, take the Lord's command to heart, which is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. For Christ has conquered and defeated him at his work there at the cross of Calvary. But you'll notice in verse 30, Judas goes out, and John tells us that final phrase, and it was night. So it was night, of course, not just in the setting there in Jerusalem. It's night in Judas's soul. And you could sit in here tonight, and, or this morning, and the setting is not night. But it could be night in your soul, as perhaps the Spirit's uncovering the degree to which you have committed deceit against the Lord, even been okay in betraying Him in your own life. So there's the heart of deceit. And the second section shows us the heart of devotion. And I would imagine that many of you, if not all of you in this room, understand how one person can make all the difference in the atmosphere of a room. You know, kids, perhaps you can think of a class in school where perhaps a student is not there when you show up on the next day, and class is altogether different because that student isn't there. Those of you that obviously work day in and day out can understand how certain meetings go much better when a certain coworker doesn't show up to that meeting. I mean, I've come in occasions before and preached in settings where I know that there were opponents and people who really didn't like me that were going to be present in the room. And then I show up and I preach and they're not there. And there's some degree of unburdened soul that belongs to that ministry moment. And that's evidently what happens with Jesus as Judas leaves. It's like the mood lightens in the room. That's why one scholar says it's almost as though a characteristic belonged to Jesus in that moment that his... His heart relief was palpable before the disciples. Because look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now. And this initiates what we really call the upper room discourse, which is the longest section of Jesus' private teaching that you're going to find in the entire Bible. And it all begins, as it probably should begin, with glory. Because look at verse 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And kids, you can circle the number of times that he's using the word there of glory in those two verses. Isn't it? You have sentences full of glory, just as Jesus is full of glory. And all he is saying is that as he's looking to being raised up unto that cursed death at Calvary in just only a few hours' time, he's saying, there in my death is the greatest manifestation and even declaration of my glory and the Father's glory that anyone could ever see. If you wanted to paint a portrait of the Father's glory in the Son, the Son's glorying unto the Father, this is the perfect place to do it. There on a hill far away where there's an old rugged cross because what happens there in just a few hours' time is there were justice and mercy in the fullness of their glory, 
meet. That wrath and grace, they collide for all the world to see. That the Father is revealing His glory in the death of His Son. The Son is glorifying the Father in His obedience. And you'll see He says, knowing that soon and very soon this was going to take place, verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. Just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. So in so many ways, this upper room discourse, this farewell that comes to the disciples are these final words of Jesus before he is going to die. And I hope many of you perhaps even pray with some regularity for the ability in God's kindness, to meet your dying day with this kind of resolve? Don't you want to be in a place where you can speak to your loved ones as you're soon to depart? Words of instruction in Scripture? Words of kindness to those generations that you will leave behind? Or words of wisdom for how they, they must live their life in Christ? And that's what Jesus is doing. And you'll see that he gives them the central command, this heart of devotion that's to mark their life in discipleship. Look at verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, I've wondered if Jesus said that slowly, which he probably did, if it would have sounded something like this. Children, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Because of Peter being who he is, he could look at Peter across the table and he'd have some kind of strange look on his face. New commandment? Love one another? We've heard that one before, Jesus. I mean, that's writ large across the Old Testament to such a degree that a scribe came to Jesus and said, What's the most important commandment? And what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what's, what's new about this commandment that's meant to be so central to their life and discipleship? Well, what's new about it is because of what follows. First, it's a commandment unto reflected love, we might say. Because he says, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. Their love is to reflect the Savior's love. And how is that love just so vividly displayed before their very attention only moments prior as he stooped to wash their feet? It's a love that sacrifices. It's a love that stoops. It's a love that serves. It's a love that is willing to lay down its life for others. Uh, That pattern and purpose in Christ's love is to be what? That pattern and purpose that belongs to his disciples' love. And it's not just a reflecting love, it's a revealing love. Because you'll see what he says in verse 35. By by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For most of the third century, a man named Tertullian was the bishop in the ancient city of Carthage. He was a master in so many things theological, so many things rhetorical, that even later on, one of the church fathers, Cyprian, when he would tell his assistant to go fetch for him one of Tertullian's books, Cyprian would say, give me the master. And Tertullian was a master in 
and apologetics in a variety of different ways. He often would write these letters that would defend Christian beliefs and practices uh, in the pagan world in which he lived that would find such beliefs and practices so strange. And in one of his apologetic letters, what he, he talked about was this brand that the world had already placed upon Christians. Uh, he said this, many put a brand upon us. He says, this is the brand. See, they say, how they love one another. And you might know that we live in an age, in a culture, in a context that loves to talk about branding, rebranding, personal brands, corporate brands. Even we use that language in the church world of, of rebranding. But do you see here how Jesus says the brand, the distinctive reality, the noticeable feature that's to belong to his disciples is that they love one another? And perhaps it's a place where the most profound conviction is meant to strike us according to God's word and spirit. Because think of the ways in which this past week has it shown that you belong to Jesus because of the love you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Or perhaps you might assess it differently when someone in the church's name is mentioned. Are you much more adept at racing to something they don't do right according to your mind? Or you wish they would do different? Or are you much more adept at speaking about the ways in which God's grace and kindness has worked in their life that you would love them despite their shortcomings and failings, serve them, stoop, and even sacrifice in a way that shows your heart of devotion. So we have a heart of deceit. We have a heart of devotion. And this third scene, however briefly it comes, is the heart of denial. Because Peter, he's always got to talk, doesn't he? You know, he, He's that guy that belongs to so many church gatherings, I suppose. Simon says, notice verse 36, Lord, where are you going? He's also the guy that misses the point. Jesus has said, I'm going somewhere you can't come. But here's the important thing that you love one another. Now what's Peter doing? Don't worry about that. Lord, where are you going? I want to know, where, where are you going? And Jesus says, notice the end of verse 36. Where I'm going, Peter, you can't follow me now, but... You will follow me afterward. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Again, if you compare this scene with other scenes in the Gospels, uh, some of the, the fuller portrait that emerges is Jesus has also had been talking about this prophecy that was going to be fulfilled, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. And Peter has this kind of boastful confidence. Lord, they're they're maybe going to all scatter from you, these other disciples, but I will stand next to you. I will even lay down my life for you, is what he says. But there's a great irony, isn't there? That, that Jesus is going to say, Peter, you're not going to die for me. You're going to deny me. Therefore, I'm going to lay down my life for you. For even deniers have a place in my kingdom. You'll see verse 38. Will you lay down your life for me? Amen, amen, I say to you. The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So you notice you have these bookends of treachery. And right in the center is that center place of 
the Christian life. That heart of devotion, that heart of discipleship, that you love one another. I think it was about two weeks ago, I was sitting down with an old friend. You know, we get breakfast, what feels like, you know, twice a year. He and I served at a church where I previously was a pastor, and some 15 years have passed since we first met. And as these meetings often go, when you only get together so infrequently, is a lot of times you're playing catch-up on stories with kids' lives and how families are going. And one of us had remarked when we were sitting across the breakfast table a few weeks ago about how children are so often raised in the same home, under the same teaching, under the same convictions, And they can just go in the opposite direction spiritually. And what you have there in the upper room is that same principle applied to the disciples, don't you? These same two men, Judas and Peter, had seen all the same things, heard all the same things, experienced so many of the same things. You have one that's going to be doomed in his deceit. One that's going to be delivered in spite of his denial. One who proves he really wasn't a sheep in Christ's fold. One who is a sheep for whom the shepherd will lay down his life. And so what I want to do here at the end is help you see the warning and the welcome that belongs to what Jesus has just said to Judas and what Jesus has just said to Peter. Because I want you to see, first of all, that the Lord's word to Judas warns the hard-hearted the Lord's word to Judas, it, it warns the hard-hearted, doesn't it? Because we can be forgiven for maybe hoping, if we were hearing this story for the first time, that when Judas hears from Jesus, what you're going to do, do quickly. That there'd be something in that, that parting word that would just finally break through Judas's hard heart. But he's so far gone into his sin That he's just utterly doomed in his iniquity. It's why one old pastor rightly said, One might have thought that the solemn words, What you're going to do, do quickly, Would have arrested Judas, Made him ashamed of his intended sin. But nothing seems to have moved him. Like one whose conscience is dead, Buried and gone. He rises. He goes out to his wicked work. And he parts from the Lord forever. You need to see in Judas that the Lord always discovers and ultimately uncovers hard-hearted hypocrites. So much of Satan's temptation to hard-hearted hypocrites is that they can continue to convince others that they are what they actually aren't. And Judas is now uncovered as nothing other than someone who will betray Jesus. So sometimes when you are in a room like this, you're in a room with hearts that are hard, maybe even boulder-like in how hard they are towards the Lord Jesus. Do you not know that one of the kindest things he can do, and perhaps one ordinary way that he breaks through hard hearts, is to warn them that if you don't repent and believe, you too will go the way of Judas Doomed forever. So his his word to Judas, it warns hard hearts. His word to Peter, however, welcomes the brokenhearted. 
If he's warning the hard-hearted with Judas, he's welcoming the broken-hearted with, with Peter. Because glance back to what he says uh, to Peter in verse 36. He says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me, and I wish it was italicized, afterward. It's a glorious word, afterward. Because Jesus knows everything that's going to happen before, afterward. Peter, not once, not twice, three times you're going to deny me, but afterward you will follow. Isn't it so true that the word of the gospel in Jesus Christ goes to people like you? Not once, not twice even. Three times you're going to sin in that way. And isn't it so often it feels like 3,000 times you're going to sin in that way. But afterward, you will follow me. I know you're going to fail, but afterward, you will follow me. I know that you have faltered, but afterward, you're going to follow me. So is why, if you know the story of Judas and Peter, after his deceit, Judas cries. After his denial, Peter cries. The tears of one are nothing more than a deceiver's hard-hearted remorse. The tears of the other are a denier's heartfelt repentance of a broken heart who clings to the Savior's love. Because here's a Savior that lays down his life for even people like that. So don't you see this window into Christ's heart? And you have many reasons I trust this day. As you see Christ's heart, to find faith, hope, and love welling up in your heart, that you might truly have the heart of a disciple. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would help us this day by the Spirit's work of faith within our hearts to see that amazing love of Christ Jesus that knows no limit, that we would respond with a true repentance and belief, that we might have the brand of love for one another placed upon us in all things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.